This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Literary Treks. We're your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm Dan Gunther, and joining me, as always, is Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going today? Hey, I just got back from the Bahamas, so I'm doing really well. You have to keep bringing that up, don't you? I do. I think it's funny because I was there on business and anybody I talked to would say, oh, well, have a great vacation or, oh, hope you're enjoying your vacation. I'm like, I'm working the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Still nice to get away for a little bit, though, even even though it's a working trip. That's uh, I wouldn't I'm getting a little cabin fever now, so I'd love to get away for a little bit. Yeah, that's the one thing about my job is I do quite a bit of travel and there's times I really like that and other times I don't. It just all depends what's, you know, how I'm feeling or what's going on in my life. But yeah, I was, I haven't gone anywhere the last few weeks, so it was nice to get out for a little while. So, but Mm -hmm. I'm not traveling for the next couple, well, no, wait, I take it back. I'm traveling personal travel this weekend. So yeah, I guess I'm always going somewhere. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of the places, unfortunately, we can't travel to yet is the planet Beta Z. Uh, it's under Dominion occupation, but hopefully that will all change when we get to the feature, because the feature today is The Battle of Beta Z by Charlotte Douglas and Susan Kearney. And we're going to have a special guest in the feature to talk about that with, but... Before we get there, we do have some book news that we want to talk about and a new comic to review. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's start with some book news. We got a tweet from at Star Trek with a list of some of the books that are coming out throughout this year. So we have coming soon four titles, uh, three of which we knew about and we knew the titles, but one that uh, we just recently got the title and kind of what it's about released recently. So we have Star Trek, the original series agents of influence by Dayton Ward. And we've got a back cover blurb for that. 
For years, Starfleet intelligence agents have carried out undercover assignments deep within the Klingon Empire. Surgically altered and rigorously trained in Klingon culture, they operate in plain sight and without any direct support while collecting information and infiltrating the highest levels of imperial power. Their actions have given Starfleet valuable insight into the inner workings of Klingon government and its relentless military apparatus. After three of Starfleet's longest-serving agents fear exposure, they initiate emergency extraction procedures. Their planned rendezvous with the USS Endeavor goes awry, threatening to reveal their activities and the damaging intelligence they've collected during their mission. Tasked by Starfleet to salvage the botched rescue attempt, Captain James T. Kirk and the crew of the Starship Enterprise must discover the truth behind a secret weapons experiment while avoiding an interstellar incident with the potential to ignite a new war between the Federation and one of its oldest adversaries. I like anything that has secrets. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. No, this sounds really interesting. I like... Uh, I. We always love Dayton Ward's new Star Trek novels, and this one sounds pretty cool. Yes, it does. I, I'm, I, yeah. I mean, come on, bring it on. June 9th. Yeah, I'm ready. Definitely. So the one, the next one after that, which uh, we didn't know the title of before, uh, is Star Trek Discovery Die Standing by John Jackson Miller. And we've since also learned from the author that this is going to be about uh, the mirror universe Georgiou in our universe and her kind of attempt to reignite the Terran Empire. Uh, so kind of an untold story from that character after coming over to our universe. That sounds really cool. I love John Jackson Miller's uh, discovery novel about the Enterprise, and this sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I know. I'm really excited about that, too. Oh, of course, I'm excited about all of them. But, you know, this will be the first time uh, an author has written more than one discovery novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and his uh, first one must have uh, done quite well for them to ask him back to write this one. So, Or it didn't, and they thought, we'll give you one more shot, John. <laughs> <laughs> no, it did. The first one he did really did well. It did. Definitely, yeah. Uh, and then the next one is one that we did know was coming, Star Trek More Beautiful Than Death by David Mack. And this is set in the Kelvin timeline. So this is his novel from way back in the day that got shelved for a few years. Uh, he's gone and done a few edits to update it, and it's now going to be released this year. Definitely looking forward to that one. I've been and waiting then, over a decade for it. So yeah, yeah, it's that's it's over a decade in the making. It should say yes, on the cover. Yes, definitely looking forward to that. And then we also have Star Trek Voyager to Lose the Earth by Kirsten Beyer. Now this one's been kind of on the back burner for quite a while in the schedule. Kirsten Beyer obviously being quite busy in the Discovery Writers Room and now the Picard Writers Room as she's one of the co-creators of that show. So uh, excited to finally be getting this. That one we don't have a set release date for, but they are saying it's coming this year. So yeah, I'm going to say is don't hold your breath. I'm not, I don't know anything, but you know, hopefully we will get it this year, but things happen. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to get too excited. We will get <laughs> it. I just don't know if it will be this year for sure. Yeah. I, I really hope it's, it's sooner rather than later. Um, that said, Kirsten Beyer Voyager novels are worth waiting for. So, you know, 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is her last one, so she probably can't wait to get it done because she's got a lot that she's working on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. And uh, yeah, if, hopefully everyone out there, you're watching the fruits of her current labors every week on uh, CBS All Access if you're in the States and elsewhere if you're not. Star Trek Picard, Kirsten Beyer, man, keep it coming. Great stuff so far. So, yeah. Engage. Indeed. Well, after that, I guess all that we have left to move on to here is the Star Trek Year 5 Valentine's Day special. And this is good timing. We're recording this the day before Valentine's Day, and it'll come out shortly after Valentine's Day. So... Um, yeah, what better way to celebrate that holiday of love than with Star Trek's own James T. Kirk and uh, his famed, um, I don't know how to put it. <laughs> we know what you're talking about. I don't about. know how to end that sentence. We know what you're talking about. You know, I was yeah. talking to Brandishing Matala <laughs> earlier today where he mentioned about this comic to me and I was like, you know, isn't this something we've always been asking for? We want a really good Valentine's Day comic special that we can give to our loved ones, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, no. Um, I don't know how that well that would go over, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, well, <laughs> it wouldn't go over well. I mean, my wife likes Star Trek, but she'd be like, okay, why isn't this? You know what she would say if I gave this to her for Valentine's Day? She would say, isn't this more for you than me? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly the reaction I'd get as well, for sure. Well, this was an interesting story. So we start out with Kirk on shore leave, uh, apparently with a bunch of other Starship crews as part of this shore leave as well and he meets an interesting other captain uh named laura roan and she's captain of the uss drake so first of all i think the setup is really interesting pitting kirk i don't want to say against but but pairing him with someone of kind of equal status and rank i think that makes for an interesting dynamic between these two characters I do too. I agree 100%. That's the one thing I really liked about this because we've seen him in other relationships and I like the idea of him having a relationship with someone else who is also a captain that there's that thing they can relate to. And that is being a captain, being in command of a starship, having, you know, their love affairs with their own starships. And so she kind of mirrors that with him and they can share that experience with each other. So I like that for him. I really do. It works so well in this. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's a really cool dynamic. And of course this initial flirtation does lead to romance after they take part in this plot to kidnap an ensign that happens really quickly. And so this is kind of the first incident of the novel and it's just over in a flash and it really sets the stage for what to expect from the rest of this comic because it's very frenetic. It jumps through time really quickly, kind of chronicling this ongoing romance between these two captains. So they rescue this ensign and then end up in bed together because, you know, Kirk's got away with the ladies and this lady has a way with Kirk. So mm -hmm. they seem to work out quite well here. They do. And 
you know, yeah, like you're saying, it's jumping ahead through time. We see them together. I guess the one thing that bothered me, and it's it's such a nitpick thing, but you know, we we've never heard of this woman before in his life. Yet, it, as we go through the story, she's a, so important to him. There's you know such a big impact in a sense, which we'll get to in a moment here. But you know, such a big impact in his life. Yet we never hear about her anywhere else. So. That kind of just makes it like, eh, this doesn't feel really real to him because we've never heard about this woman before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did definitely kind of uh, bump up against that reading this as well. That kind of, uh, you know, this woman ends up being so important in Kirk's life. And it seems odd that, of course, we've never heard of her, but... um I can see why they went this route. Like there's not really any characters from Kirk's past they could use to tell the story that they want to tell here. So I'm kind of willing to forgive that. And, and, you know, there's lots of adventures in between the ones we see on television. Uh, if I guess if you figure the novels in there, there's way too many adventures in that five-year mission, but I'm still kind of willing to go with it here. Yeah, I am too. And then I started thinking about past relationships I've had <laughs> where things got too serious too fast or whatever, made rash decisions, and they really don't impact much of my life today. You would probably never even hear me talk about them. That's true. Well, one thing we get, which is really cool, is we see an evolution of this relationship. So, you know, early on, they're kind of involved in this fight against Nausicaan pirates and. Kirk surprises her and she gets kind of mad at that because, you know, he wasn't, uh, wasn't considering her feelings about butting in on this battle that they had going on without, you know, kind of coordinating things. But as the years go by, they learn to work together more and more as they get closer. They're involved in other incidents in which each of them is able to anticipate what the other is going to do. And they end up making a really good, team when their ships kind of team up here, which I thought was kind of a neat way to show how that evolves through the years. Yeah. And I like seeing the motion picture uniforms. We don't see enough of those. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Interestingly, before we get to the motion picture uniforms, though, too, we get a proposal, which is interesting. And this is where I really kind of in my head was like, wow, we've never heard of this character before. But right. again, I just have to go like, oh, no, no, it's, it's okay. Like, we that can't. That was the moment. Yes. I was yeah, referring sure. to earlier. It's like, no, you know, it's like, what? No, he didn't almost get married to her. We've never heard about her. Mm-hmm. And of course, being such a, you know, so into the novels and stuff, I was like, well, where does Lori Siana fit into this? The woman he did marry at that right. time. And oh, wait, no, different continuities. Can't can't do that <laughs> and antonia is that yeah where's name? antonia yeah brandon oh. shamatala when we were talking about it, he's like would this have worked better if it was that character in this oh and maybe made her a captain because yeah. we don't know anything about her my only problem with that is he didn't really meet her until much later that's true too yeah but absolutely. you still could have had this set later in the timeline and still done the same type of story mm-hmm Absolutely. The one thing I do like that they do is is they bring in Carol Marcus because that was kind of popped into my head as well. And I, I really like the relationship between Kirk and Carol Marcus because, you know, it's clear they've had this history. They have a child together by this point. But 
there's no, like, it's, it's not like this, uh, unrequited love or anything like that. They both have grown apart and, you know, they have this really comfortable kind of back and forth between each other, but there's no, like, um, no hint that one of them wants to get back with the other or anything like that. I thought that was a really mature presentation of where that relationship has gone. Yeah. And she's giving him advice if he should take a promotion to Admiral. And, you know, one of his concerns is, well, if now he's an Admiral and this woman is a captain that could affect the relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. and is he going to hold back his career because of this? So yeah, we we go through not just the five-year mission, but like you said, we're into the motion picture years with the motion picture uniforms, and there's a significant incident at this time, and we're led to believe that this captain has sacrificed her ship and a, a couple of her senior officers and herself uh, to save the Earth um, by blowing up a black hole. And I'm not clear exactly what happened but the ship shows up again years later um on the edge of federation space so obviously this this black hole transported them somewhere but there the story's not really clear about that yeah and there's all these like crystals on it on the ship yeah i that's one thing about this comic is it's clear that the writers have the backstory of what happened in mind when they wrote this, but we don't get to know it. So I would just, I would love to pick their brains and see like, Oh, what was the plan? Like, why are there crystals all over the ship? This captain even has like a crystal in her eye or something. Yeah. Like, I'm really curious what happened. I'd love to know what looks like could be crystal earrings. too. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of strange. Yeah, I don't know. You know, in some ways, I thought when you look at the crystals on the ship, could those be time crystals like we've seen in Discovery? And when they went through the black hole, they ran into these crystals and they all kind of stuck to the ship and that propelled them maybe to this moment in the future Mm -hmm. or something. And yeah, some adventure where she lost an eye and put one of the crystals in it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really not sure. I feel like... It's some sort of advanced technology that they've incorporated into the ship in order to make the voyage back home or something. And and it's also repaired injuries or something like that. I don't know. I'd yeah. love, like I said, I'd love to talk to the writers and just see like, so what's that about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's strange that there's not just one line or something that just says what that is. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. So, yeah, we thought she was gone, but she does show up at the end very late in Kirk's career. And, and we're told basically this is after they've gone back in time and, and rescued the whales and he's been demoted to captain and they're on the Enterprise A now. So this woman really was the significant force in Kirk's entire life from the early uh, five year mission till the end of his career almost. Yeah, and because it's so, you know, one yeah, you know, one point she's around and then time goes by, and another point she's around, time goes by. That's what I'm saying. It's like maybe and look, I know it's all fiction and you know, it's like, well, cause you know, you never heard about her before because this comic didn't come out until now. I get all that. I just like, you know, I'm just putting things in universe as much yeah. as I can. And I just think, you know, she wasn't as significant as maybe 
then we're led to believe in a sense, because even though they talk about getting married, it makes me wonder if were they really in love with each other or did they just get along so well that it's just like, hey, you know what? Maybe we should get married. Yeah, maybe that's not a bad idea. Nah, I don't know. That she really wasn't that significant in his life. Mm. Yeah, I I don't know. Reading this, I kind of buy it as like this little unseen bit of history. And, you know, if you disregard, like it's tough where from our position because of all the novels and all that stuff. So if like I completely disregard that stuff and only what's seen on television and in the movies counts, I can totally weave this story in there. And I'm like, ah, I buy it. I kind of buy point. it. Yeah. Cause I'm always thinking of everything, the novels and other comics and stuff. The only thing I would count really against this one for me is like how frenetic and fast paced it was. I'd love it if this was more of like a series of comics. And I know it's a Valentine's special. It's just a one issue thing, but I would have almost liked to have it drawn out a little bit more. Uh, so we see, you know, that these significant moments aren't just this flash in a pan thing. I'd like to see this developed a little bit more personally. Yeah. Um, I have to admit that when I saw this issue come out, I was like, I, I, I'm not really interested in this a Valentine's special. And I look at the cover and there's Kirk with some woman sitting on the rocks, like they're near the ocean or something. And I'm just like, Oh gosh, I'm not going to like this, but I actually did like it. I mean, it really, because it really explores the character of Kirk and what he's going to and like going through with like trying to make a relationship work with someone who is in a similar position as he is. And I just, I think it worked well. I liked, I like seeing him in this type of relationship. Yeah, me too. Um, the thing I think worked absolutely the best in this comic though, is the Valentine at the end with Spock. And it says, I have been and always shall be your Valentine. <laughs> That's my absolute <laughs> favorite part. I love that. <laughs> Well, by the way, speaking of the cover, the, the main cover of this, the art is done by Christopher Jones. Hmm. And I thought, Christopher Jones is the founder of Trek FM? <laughs> it's not. But I thought that, that's why I thought at first I was like, wait, I didn't know he did art. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, so I, I think this is definitely, personally, a fun, interesting story and I, you know, definitely worth picking up, I think. Well, in last week's Literary Treks, we talked about the Star Trek Picard Countdown trilogy, and that was Literary Treks 295, Walls Behind Walls Behind Walls. And over in the Babel Conference, we got a comment on that episode from Justin Ozer. And I'm sad to say we only have one comment on that episode. I thought we'd have a lot more based on it being the kind of introduction to Star Trek Picard. Yeah. And this is a comic and we get to see things and read things that before anybody else would see in the series. So I would think a lot of people would have read these comics just to get the preview of the new Picard series. But we only got one comment. What's going on? Very we never strange. get just one comment. Yeah. Now, we always get comments from Justin Ozer, but who was it this time? Uh, well, we have a comment from Justin Ozer. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
Well, Justin says, great interview. I love this comic series and it was wonderful to have Mike Johnson provide background to the making of the comic and his thoughts on the story. Definitely hope we get more Picard comics soon. Well, yeah, definitely agree with you there, Justin. Thanks for the comment. And uh, yeah, I'm surprised, especially since we had one of the writers on the show. Um, I want more people to listen to that episode and comment on this because I was actually really interested in what people thought of the Picard countdown comics. So, um, yeah, maybe let's try and solicit some more comments for next week's episode. I don't know if I'm just setting myself up here for another bit of a disappointment, but I'm really curious about what people thought about these comics. Yeah, because these comics were great going into the TV series. It really like I was I was knowing things before they revealed certain things about certain characters and even the uniforms. Everybody was going on about the uniforms that Picard was wearing when he was an admiral, and I was like, "What's the big deal? We've already seen these." Oh yeah, it was in the comic. Not everybody read the comics. <laughs> mm-hmm, indeed. Well, on that note, I guess uh, all that's left is to head over to the feature and welcome our special guest into the studio to talk about Star Trek The Next Generation, The Battle of Beta Z. So on the feature today, we are talking about the Star Trek The Next Generation novel, The Battle of Beta Z. And Bruce and I can't discuss this novel alone because the main character of this novel is Deanna Troy. So we need to bring in a Deanna Troy expert, which is why the wonderful Amy Nelson is joining us for today's episode. Amy, welcome back to Literary Treks. Well, hello, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to be talking uh, not about Q, but finally about Troy. Yes. Yeah. And we felt like you needed to be on more Trek FM shows. So that's why we had you on here, too. Definitely. Absolutely. Well, like I said, the novel we're talking about is The Battle of Beta Z. This is a TNG novel that takes place during the Dominion War. Uh, if uh, listeners will remember, Beta Z was invaded by the Dominion in the Deep Space Nine episode In the Pale Moonlight. And this novel kind of explores the fallout from that and uh, what's next for the Betazoid people, how that all plays out. So I kind of want to ask you guys, is this the first time you've read this novel uh, or is this something that you read closer back to when it came first came out? Okay, so yeah, I did not read it when it came out. I did read it and I think um, people know how to get me to do things. They say the word Troy. So there is a Trek book club on Twitter and uh, Rob runs it and he tweeted the cover of the book and then tagged me in it and says, Miss Amy Nelson, I think this is right up your alley. So I had never joined one of their Twitter book clubs and stuff. I mean, I'm still don't really understand how Twitter works, but I decided to join and read it because it was about Troy. And so I did read it. And then at the end of the month, they do these little questions and answers and you. So I was learning really cool stuff about Twitter and got to read a Deanna Troy book. So that's when I did it. And that I think was just last year. Nice. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, 
obviously, I know you're a huge fan of Troy, so that makes a heck of a lot of sense. Uh, to your question about Twitter, I think pretty much how Twitter works is you go on there and you say as many inflammatory things as possible to get as many retweets and likes mm-hmm. as you can. Yes. I could be wrong about that, but just based on what I've observed, I think that's how Twitter works. You might be right on that, yes. Especially <laughs> if the tweets are about Dan. Those are quite interesting, too. <laughs> Hmm. No, no, no one ever says something bad about Dan. But yeah, um, on Twitter, the book club, yeah, it's at Trek Book Club. If anybody wants to do that, it's just that's that's the name, Trek Book Club. It's really easy. Um, and you know, now before we jump into the novel, I just wanted to point out that the authors are Charlotte Douglas and Susan Kearney. And a quick Google mm-hmm. search, I this looks like it's the only Star Trek book written by either one, well, the team, but. Even outside of that team, individually, they haven't written another Star Trek book that I can quickly find on Google right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did the same thing. I wasn't able to find that either. So, uh, you know, kind of a, a initial output from these two and then no follow up, unfortunately, because, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to give my overall rating of the novel, but I was suitably impressed. I think they've got a really good handle on the Star Trek universe and this story in particular. Uh, how about you, Bruce? Did you read this novel when it first came out, or is this your first time reading it? Uh, no, this is my first time reading it. First time. Okay. Yeah, I've been wanting to read it. I have a private Kindle list of books that I wanted to read, and this was definitely on that list. And it's not a very long list. There's maybe 15 books on them, and they're not all Star Trek. But I've heard about this book over the years, people talking about it. And I was like, I got to read this book. I'm really intrigued as to how this book plays out. And um, then I was reaching out to you, Dan, and we were trying, because the Picard book, we're trying to set up a a time to interview Una McCormick about the Picard book. And because of her schedule, we had a hole in the schedule. And I said, Dan, just, just pick a book surprised me with something and he picked this one and i was like yes i've been wanting to read that so yeah this is my first time reading it nice yeah and i actually picked this one because it's kind of been on my to read list for a while as well i bought it at a used bookstore years ago and then of course it just sat on my shelf and i never got around to it so uh yeah i was really happy to to read this one and going by the cover you know, sometimes I've seen online that people take the Star Trek book covers and give them alternate titles based on the imagery on the cover. And this one I like to think of as Attack of the 50-Foot Betazoid. Yes, because <laughs> of the little Jem Hadar. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's this huge, you know, 50-foot tall Troy advancing on these Jem Hadar. And if you look at it that way, they're running in fear from her, <laughs> which is amazing. It is. Yeah. Giant Troy. That would be an interesting. Well, you know, we had giant Spock in the animated series. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I wonder if this could be another Dr. Caniculus thing. No, it's actually not. We read the novel and there's no Dr. Caniculus in this one. Spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to jump in uh, because I found it very interesting because I read the little about the authors, you know, at the end and Cause I was like, man, this was, you know, pretty good. I felt like there were certain lines that I completely heard the character's voice come through. I mean, Data and Troy were just the two major examples. Uh, Luoxana, I heard her voice and I was like, the, 
it's almost the cadence and the tone and the context for how that they wrote those characters. I could hear their voices in my head. And that doesn't always happen when I read a Star Trek book. And there was also just a really nice blending. And we'll talk about it more. But like you said, with Worf and O'Brien, and it's sort of amongst the DS9 timeline, but still obviously a TNG book. And they they were able to blend those two together. And I thought, yeah, these are experienced Trek writers. And so for you to say that they haven't written any other Star Trek, you know, it just really surprised me. So, yeah, I'm surprised too. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, they write other books and maybe this was just that one shot, like the two of them wanted to do a Star Trek book and they had this one shot and that's all they wanted to do. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there are a number of other things that I found while reading this novel. There's uh, one character in particular whose name was really familiar. And I was like, this character's shown up somewhere else before. And uh, I, I looked this character up and we'll, we'll get to the actual characters eventually. But um, Court Inarin was one character in this novel that uh, he's been used since in other novels that I have read, like A Singular Destiny and Articles of the Federation uh, and, and those books. So I, I thought it was the other way around, but apparently this is the novel that that character is first introduced. So mm. it has some effects on Treklet going forward and other writers have used some of the things that came up in this novel. So it really does feel like it fits in and it feels like it's written by experienced Trek writers. I definitely got that impression as well while I was reading it. Yeah. And not only did they inspire characters or situations or whatever that other novels may have used, but they even used things created from other novels. So they actually fit right into the lit verse of Star Trek. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's uh, get right into the plot of this book then. So uh, like we said, Beta Z has been recently occupied by the Dominion. They've built an orbiting space station, which we're led to uh, understand is you know, the same type of station that Deep Space Nine is. Uh, this one is Centoknor as opposed to Teroknor. And the Betazoid people are getting desperate. They're looking to throw off the shackles of the Dominion, and the Federation is stretched really thin. So what ends up happening is the Resistance gets it in their head to use this Betazoid criminal who has learned the ability to kill telepathically. And this is a horrendous crime on Beta Z. He's been locked away for years. And we even get some flashback scenes where a younger Deanna Troy kind of does a residency, I guess, at this prison where he's kept and all this stuff. So this Betazoid named Hent Tevrin. What did we think of this character? We kind of get an introduction to him very early uh, in his incarceration in this novel. Well, he definitely is interesting, scary, uh, your typical serial killer you don't want anything to do with. Um, it was interesting in that flashback where, you know, Troy is anxiously awaiting her internship and you know, I can just, I remember myself when I did my student teaching, I'm going to change the world and all students are going <laughs> to love math. You know, you just, you have this passion, obviously, because you're going into it. And I really got that feeling with her and for her to meet and then analyze this Hent Tevrin, um, it was interesting when she was sort of reporting back and like, okay, what did you think of Tevrin? 
and like this total, how she described him, um, that he knows the difference between right and wrong, but just doesn't care. And, Mm -hmm. and that sums up what and who he is. Like he's intelligent, very intelligent, but just doesn't care. He only wants to satisfy himself and then using that word psychopath. But then I even liked what they did in the book where they also was like, well, what is the cause? Like what creates a psychopath? And it was interesting because they're like, well, did he have a terrible childhood? Well, no, he had both parents, you know, and it's like they sort of go through and say a bad rearing could cause a psychopath, but also parents who give in and give the child and spoil the child that could also cause a psychopath. And so it was just very interesting that they went into such detail um, to set up this character for the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you were saying about how intelligent he was, but he didn't really get along with other people. I mean, he's, you know, He's not somebody who's very emotional. He's very intellectual. And I think that's part of the reason why this character I was picturing in my head, I was picturing Jim Parsons, who plays Sheldon on Big Bang Theory, but of course in a much sinister, deeper role and not as funny. But that was the actor I had playing in my head when I was reading about this character because, you know, Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory is intellectual and doesn't really understand people and he doesn't care about people's feelings all that much or, you know, whatever. He doesn't he's awkward or whatever. You know, this this character is very interesting because when you're a betazoid, you can sense people's thoughts and feelings and, and 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 to just disconnect yourself from that and look at this power of being able to kill and then having fun with it and just you know just the idea of just killing somebody just for the fun of it is just very disturbing and it made this character really interesting mm-hmm. to me because it's so unlike something or someone that you'd find that is a beta zit so yeah, definitely. I, it's interesting, too, that you picked Jim Parsons, because I was kind of curious about that, too, if if you guys had pictured anybody in particular when reading this character. My brain kept going to an actor named Mark Ralston, who always plays, you know, really creepy, psychotic characters. I played one in Babylon 5. He even played uh, in The Next Generation, the episode Eye of the Beholder, kind of that type of, of creepy killer. The thing is, the novel says that she doesn't get like a creepy vibe from him. She says several times that he seems very normal and kind of at ease and and you wouldn't think to look at him. So my brain kept wanting to go like really creepy character actor, serial killer type route, but that's not really how he's described. So Jim Parsons, that's definitely an interesting choice But that's choice what makes sure. him so scary is because he's just mm-hmm. seems so normal. Absolutely. You know? yeah. And he's what a uh, wolf in sheep's clothing, you know? Yeah, for sure. Amy, did you pr- uh, picture anybody in particular? or No, I generally don't do that. But yeah. I don't mm-hmm. always do that. When okay. I used to read years ago, I always assigned actors or people that I knew to different parts. But mm-hmm. I've, I've run out of a lot of people. So I, I typically don't. <laughs> but in this case, I did. 
Yeah, I usually don't either. And I don't know if it's a, a testament to Mark Ralston's acting that anytime there's a really creepy character, I cast him or if that says something else that I don't want to explore deeply. I don't know. I also wanted this character <laughs> yeah. to say Bazinga and it just didn't work. No. Well, he might have after he told Troy about killing his parents versus killing others. That really gave me chills because the differentiation, he's like, well, I killed my parents for practice, but everyone else I just killed for fun. I'm yeah. like, oh, Ooh. chills. Like the the level of evil that has to be in your character and in your brain. And, and, and you're right. It is such a dichotomy between this beta Zed who's supposed to be feeling, but then not even caring about the feelings of others. It's very interesting. So we should say he's imprisoned in a prison facility, and it's not on Beta Z. It's on Dorona, another world in the Betazoid system, I'm assuming, or maybe a nearby system. I wasn't quite clear on that, but it's basically in order to bring him to the resistance, Starfleet has to mount a mission because he's not there on Beta Z. They need to bring him in from where he's being incarcerated. So... This idea of the resistance to use this killer and learn his skill to turn it on the Jem'Hadar and uh, overcome their occupation by the Dominion. What did we all think of this? Because we learn in this novel and, and from how they've been characterized elsewhere, the Betazoid people are a very peaceful people. They, they've kind of shaken off their killer instincts from centuries past and have grown to be, be past that basically and there's a real fear that this will taint the betazoid culture in such a way that it would be hard to bring it back so i don't know what do you guys think of this idea of the resistance do you think it's uh you know letting the genie out of the bottle or a necessary evil how did you guys view that yeah i was still quite surprised at what they wanted to do because yeah, you cannot put the genie back in the bottle. There's the ramifications. You can't even fathom like you will not know. You may think, Oh, the ramifications are going to be ABC. No, you do not understand bringing this to the knowledge of the people and how that's going to change an entire species. So one, you just don't do that. It's way I couldn't even believe it. But I was my mind changed when I heard Luaxana describing, and I think it's important to understand that they were taking the Cardassians were taking uh Beta Z people, the strongest of the telepaths, like they were being harvested, if you will. So they were not only losing control of their world. It's not just a simple, you know, occupation by the Cardassians and the Dominion and the Jem'Hadars everywhere, but they were being taken to act as slaves to build their station and to act as we learn later uh, in these experiments by this evil, was it Moset? Yeah, yeah Dr. Krell Moset. Yes. Yeah. So 
adding that it's like your people are being harvested. They're being slaves. You've lost all control. Like their backs were against the wall. And it was at that point when Luoxana was explaining, it's like, don't judge because you aren't here, Deanna. And she was talking to Deanna. Um, so at that point I was like, gosh, what do you do? But I still, it's so, I'm still hesitant about it. I don't think that you can fully understand the consequences of something that drastic. Yeah. Cause they're huge consequences because when this is said and done and you rid yourself of the dominion and all these gem Hadar on the planet, then what's next? Everybody just goes back to the regular life and no one uses this again. And we don't have any other psychos out there that could be using this and killing people. You know, mm. it's like that needs of the many outweigh the, the, the few and, and the one, but you know, so yeah, you may have some killing sprees that go on after this. And, you know, by somebody who's using this power on other betazoids, but it does change the whole culture. I mean, it's like, you know, what are the after effects of all of this? Mm -hmm. And I think I would have liked that explored a little more in this book. I mean, it, it was some, but there's a huge ripple effect that can come from this. And, mm -hmm. but then again, what do you do with the dominion there? And you, you can't get rid of them. And, but the thing is, now think about this. I mean, how much Star Trek do we get where they figure out some way? I mean, if this wasn't happening on Beta Z and this was happening on another planet, what would we, we have done? We wouldn't have done this. There has to be other options. But they didn't explore those other options. Yeah. You make a good point, of course, about the long-term ramifications. Even in the short term, like... The fact that they're wanting to use this against the Jem'Hadar, there's a certain amount of othering going on here, saying, well, the Jem'Hadar are genetically engineered killing machines, nothing more. Well, we know that's not necessarily the case. Yes, they're genetically engineered to kill, but they are also thinking, feeling people in and of themselves. And then where's the line? So, okay, we'll use it against the Jem'Hadar because they're unthinking cruel brutes that we can feel okay about doing this with but what about the cardassians okay are you going to use it against them what's your justification there if it's only because Jemadar are engineered killing machines what about the cardassians what about the vorta what about all the others that you're still going to have to come up against here where are you drawing the line and how far does that line slide down the hill to really butcher a metaphor here about, you know, where you're going to stop using this or keep using it and who makes that choice. And now it's in so many people's hands. Like Amy said, the genie's out of the bottle now. So yeah, it's, it's a scary thought and one that I think really puts the Betazoid society on a precipice that, you know, they, if they step off, there's no going back. Well, even think, boy, that's a lot of metaphors. <laughs> well, even think within the Federation, they could start utilizing Betazoids on other missions now. They could just grab a whole group of them and put them on starships. And now, you know, anytime there's a threat, well, you know, get the Betazoids, start killing everybody with their minds, you know? Yeah, they sort of mentioned that in the book and that it's like, well, it didn't work because they sort of lost 40%, you know, four out of 10 died, but... Yeah. It's like if it had been more successful, 
then yeah, this is <laughs> going to be used as a weapon. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I, I really feel that's one area and we're, we're kind of jumping towards the end here because yeah, sorry. <laughs> so they, they end up doing something other than the killing thing, but it's still a pretty formidable uh, mental thing. And there's kind of one line that just waves away like, Oh, the betazoids won't be using this in other places afterwards or something. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, hmm. it would have been <laughs> interesting and this would be a cheap shot, but have a way to say, okay, we can teach everybody how to use telepathy to kill but then this guy also has the ability to wipe people's minds of a memory, you know? And then it would be like, yeah, cheap yeah, trick. we teach everybody yeah, no. and then psh, they don't remember it. <laughs> or yeah. maybe it would have been more interesting <laughs> if he had the ability to do that and he died or something happened and then he couldn't wipe everybody. And we'd be like, oh no, what <laughs> But, you know, one thing I was thinking, and yeah. you're right about kind of jumping around because things come up uh, about it, but, you know, th they were so intent on rescuing the Betazoids from the uh, space station, but yet they teach this ability to the point that more Betazoids are dying on the planet from what they're taught than probably what were rescued on the station. Well, I think it was sort of a cheap trick, if you will, that the... the Oh, what did they call it? The telepathic, oh, the empathic transfer, whatever, oh, only the... worked on the Jem Hadar, right? Because mm. of their being farmed or raised, that they that their brains couldn't handle the influx of emotion, right? And I really did like the uh, one paragraph where it just listed all the emotions that they tried and then they were monitoring their responses. And then this type of emotion was what was going to do the most damage. Um, but again, that was sort of an easy out. I mean, I know, yeah, we are jumping around, but you brought up the end. Um, <laughs> I just sort of thought that it was like too perfect of an ending a, the Beta Zeds didn't have to learn this killing machine, you know, and then the, it only worked on the Gem Hadar. Like everything lined up just a little too perfect for me. And that was one of it was it was Gem Hadar only. Mm -hmm. Well, we should probably explain what we're talking about then, because what happens at the end of the book then is um there's basically a choice. So there's this ability that this serial killer has to kill, which is basically like shorting out the brain of your victim, causing them excruciating pain, and then they die. Uh, and then there's another ability he has, which is to project emotions onto another being, which was mostly just done for fun. It didn't really do anything, but it's very taxing on the person doing it to their target. Um, and basically the, the killing one has no blowback. You can do that and you'll, you'll be fine. But the projecting emotions could possibly tax the person doing it to the point where they might die. And what ends up happening is there's a choice given to the resistance. You can have this killing ability and lose no one, but possibly change Betazoid society forever. Or you can do this, 
emotional projection thing, which has the side effect of really affecting the Jemadar, like you said, but a certain number of people doing it will die, which I think was a really interesting choice. And Bruce, you brought up the fact that, you know, there's lots of people dying on the space station and this solution has lots of Betazoids dying as well. I think the fundamental difference, of course, is these are people on the front line who are making a choice to sacrifice themselves for the liberation of their world, as opposed to, of course, being subjects in an experiment that's horrific. And we should talk about Krelmoset and his experiments at some point, because yikes, like brain surgery on conscious Jem'Hadar and Betazoids and ooh. this is a this is a character too we've seen in other novels as well set after this so yeah interesting stuff for sure so do we want to talk about that now yeah let's let's jump into Krelmo set <laughs> because uh, so this character was introduced in the Voyager episode Nothing Human as a hologram of himself and since then the novels have used him. Now, this takes place before the Voyager Spirit Walk novels, which is where we recently talked about him. By recently, I mean last year sometime on Literary Treks. And uh, this novel is actually referenced in those novels as well, which was part of the reason this is stuck in my head as one I wanted to read at some point. So, yeah, what did we think of Krell Moset and how he's characterized in this novel? He was a big baby. You know, yeah. (laughs) You know, it was interesting because with Mosette, I did have a character come into mind when I was like, oh, wait. Um, but it was that uh, character in Wonder Woman with the the uh, gas, the poisonous gas oh, and yeah. was testing on oh, humans. Okay. So mm-hmm. it was interesting that that person came into mind when I was reading Mosette. So that's weird. I don't even know the actor's name, and I don't even know if that's based on real life or if that's just a Wonder Woman part. Hmm. Do you know? I'm not sure either. This isn't Wonder Woman literary. Oh. Wonder Woman. <laughs> um, I, well, because it was like World War One, so I didn't know if there was some I think it's a, truth to I, it. Um, I don't know. Okay. So just for uh, references' sake, I've sent in the chat so this is Krelmoset as seen in Voyager, yeah. um, if you were curious. Okay. <laughs> now, it's interesting. And of course, when we see him in Voyager, he's just a hologram. So he's not going to be exactly uh, personality-wise the same as Krelmoset here. But in Voyager, I felt him to be very confident and self-assured. And there's like that aspect to him here, but he's also... More sniveling. Yes, that's what I mean. He was a big baby. He really was. He was just like, no, it's my turn. No, they're my subjects. Leave me alone. Don't blow up the station. I'm taking control. Whatever. I mean, it was just, he was actually kind of annoying, (laughs) to Mm -hmm. be honest. He wasn't a likable character at all. Not just based on what he was doing, but just his personality. Okay, so I'm going to pose this question to you. He may not have been likable, but didn't you respect him? Because he would not leave. Like the Vorta left. They're gonna the station is going to explode. Self-destruct, right? 
He chose to stay with his research. He chose to get captured by the Federation so that his research w- could continue and live on. Can you not say, respect him for that? I would say I respect <laughs> that he's very dedicated to his work and and trying to see through as much as he can to you know finalize the mission that he's been put on. But let me ask you this. Is he dedicated or is he obsessed? Mm-hmm. Well, I think when uh, he, he's talking with Picard and Picard is stroking his ego, like it's really more about him versus the research. But up until that conversation with Picard, I thought, man, this this guy is very dedicated. He would rather his subjects his patients in air quotes, um, you know, get captured and get taken so that because if they get taken, then someone is going to wonder, even if Mosette is dead, well, what was he working on? The research is going to continue. And so I was like, at that point in the book, I was like, man, this guy really cares about research and whether his idea is right or wrong of transferring someone's, you know, uh, telepathic and and emotional into someone else i mean that aside but his dedication to the research was pretty impressive well also because he never figured it out totally he never got it to work right so it's like i think it's it's this obsession about i'm not done i'm not done i'm so close i've got to get this right i've got to get it right you know and then to start all over or to lose some of that you know, data that he had on, on what he was doing, you know, he, he, he doesn't want to do that. He can't comprehend that. He's like, no, I don't care whatever, anything else that happens around me, just leave me here, leave my subjects here and let me figure this out. Yeah. I, I definitely get your point, Amy, but I think I lean more towards Bruce's characterization of an obsession rather than a dedication just because like there's so many so much goes wrong for the Cardassians here, I think, because of Moset and his obsession here, like lowering the shields to allow the the freighter to dock while they're under attack <laughs> by the Enterprise and allowing them to beam over like, oh my like he's yeah, he's almost single handedly responsible for the Federation's success in this mission, which is I don't know, I, I I liked the inclusion of the character here, but I thought he was just a little bit too bumbling in that way uh, to the point of kind of stretching believability for me a little bit. Um, That said, yeah, his obsession definitely comes through and it could definitely be seen as dedication as well, for sure. Uh, What was the other Cardassian's name? So, yeah. Gull- okay, so the yeah. Lemek? Gullamek. Lemek. So speaking of Cardassians we've seen before, Gullamek from the Chain of Command two-parter, that kind of oily uh the, the most lizard-like Cardassian I feel like we've ever seen. I loved him in Chain of Command facing off against Jellico. I was always kind of bummed we never got to see him again. Like we saw Gullivec a, a bunch of times, but this Gullamek guy was just so slimy seeming. Uh, it was really cool to see him in this novel. I thought that was a really cool addition. I didn't make that connection, but 
all the Cardassians are slimy like that. So, and then <laughs> he just, true. yeah, he was like, well, I'm out of here. And da, da, da. yeah. It, and again, only worried about the career. Like when he was captured, you know, it's like, well, just kill me because my career is over type of thing. I'll never get any respect. And I'm like, oh, typical Cardassian. <laughs> the thing I liked about him is that everything that he wanted to do and his command decisions were the right decisions. And Moset was always the opposite of him. So I liked that the two were playing off each other, that Moset was doing these crazy things like, I'm going to put down the shields. I'm going to, and this guy's like, are you nuts? You know, <laughs> we're in a battle right now and we've got to do this and we've got to do that. And no one seems to really care. I mean, I almost felt sorry for him and just slightly, but I, 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 I like that we have two Cardassians that are total opposites of each other. Totally. Now, speaking of characters that we've seen on television before, did anybody else catch the Vorta was someone we've seen in another episode before? I was thinking maybe, I, I thought maybe she was somebody I'm thinking, but I never got to look it up to see if I was right or not. Okay. Yeah. She was Luaren, who has a very small part in one of the final episodes of Deep Space Nine. She's the Vorta in charge of the Jemadar ship that the resistance under Kira steals to get the Breen energy yes. dampening device. And interestingly enough, played by Kitty Swink, who is Armin Shimmerman's wife. Huh. Oh, I didn't even <laughs> realize that. Yeah. So just nice little uh, tie in there. I thought was kind of And Armin, cool. Armin Shimmerman is quirk and he's not even in this book. No, he's not. However, we do get representation from Deep Space Nine, which is really cool. So joining uh, the team, of course, O'Brien comes on board because, of course, he's familiar with Deep Space Nine slash Terok Nor. So they use his expertise on this away team that boards Sentok Nor with the orders to destroy the station. And he's brought there aboard the USS Defiant, which is, of course, being commanded by Worf. And in a very, very tiny little bit of a scene, we also get just a hint of Nog as well, which is nice. Yeah, it was. Uh, like I said at the top, like that they blended the two and it just seemed really natural to see them. And, you know, Nog's on the Defiant. Of course he is, you know, and O'Brien's <laughs> out there searching around and finding all the stuff It. It was really nice in that they, you know, Data and Troy were trying to get the communicator with the Defiant and Worf to pick him up and stuff. So I have to say it was a lot of fun to see O'Brien working alongside Jordy and Riker yeah. and stuff. It was just like, oh, back to the heyday of TNG. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought about that, too. It's it's kind of like a, a TNG reunion, but also Deep Space Nine. It was it's kind of strange. I like seeing Commander Vaughn in this because he's in the Deep Space Nine relaunch novels. And when I was reading this, I thought, oh, is this his first appearance? Uh, but it wasn't. It was in the relaunch novels. Avatar was the first book. But this was just a year later. So they borrowed him from those books and put him in here before he joined Deep Space Nine. So this is like a prequel to the DS9 novels. Yeah, Vaughn is a great character who, because he's so long lived, has has popped up in all kinds of places like the lost era and yeah. all this stuff. So it's nice to get a little bit of 
him in his career before he joined Deep Space Nine, because of course we know uh, his past is all in kind of special ops and dark missions like that. And so to see that aspect in him in the midst of that before his kind of uh, being touched by the prophets a little bit, I guess, in the Deep Space Nine novels was really cool. Yeah, I, I, he didn't really stand out in this book. I think because he was such a new character and maybe the authors didn't really know about him that much because he just seemed very one dimensional. Like, hi, I'm a commander. I'm here to relay, you know, what this mission is. And so we're going to go do it. And then at one point, you know, he gets whatever knocked out and carried around by data. (laughs) So, (laughs) You know, what was also another nice tie in to deep space nine was Luoxana and having her third child. So, how old was the child? Four years old? Is that what it was? It was young. I was thinking two. Oh, maybe two? Probably two to three yeah, if okay. you go by the... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was f- funny because, you know, your brain when you're reading, you just, you read top down and you read what you want to read sometimes. Um, about halfway through the book, I mean, his name was Brian. And then I was like... <laughs> <laughs> no, that is Baron, B A R I N. And so that threw me for a loop. Uh, uh, Baron, is that how you would, is that how you read it? That's how I that's, read it. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I read it as well. So, but that, that was a nice, you know, tie in because, you know, she's on Deep Space Nine, well, came to Odo when she was pregnant and stuff like that. So I sort of felt that was a Deep Space Nine tie in as well. I kept waiting for her to mention her husband, Odo. Hello. We ne- that marriage was never annulled that we ever saw. So Yeah, but you know. it wasn't listed as like a love. And I love that, loved that Timison was mentioned as yes, one of her true loves. loves. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the great loves of her life. I yeah. loved that. That mm-hmm. was that was a really nice touch for yeah. sure. See, these authors know their Star Trek. Yes. That was really cool. Yeah, they do. But, you know, I have to say, look, Lawaxana Troy is not like the first part of the book. You know, Amy, you were saying you could hear her voice. I could, too. But because of the situation being so serious, it wasn't the fun right. Lawaxana Troy that we get. You know, and there's so mm-hmm. many novels, especially by Peter David, where you just I mean, they're just hilarious. And so I'm used to that in the books. So when I got to this, she was just very serious. There was no funny lines or whatever. It really wasn't until her daughter shows up that we get more of that. Yeah. It was interesting because I was thinking that same way too. But by the end of the book, when Picard comes in and, you know, she's already done the focused mental thing um, and they're waking up and she's like, well, Picard, you know, we... I don't have time to deal with your advances. We have work to do and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know what? I liked that the novel wasn't as lighthearted as the beginning of Troy, of Luoxana, because Luoxana has gone through so much, especially with Half a Life and Dark Page and with her experiences on Deep Space Nine, like... To me, this book fit in with where Luoxana and the changes that she's made from what we've seen from season one to now. So I really appreciated 
her ability to, yes, converse with Picard lightly and to have the moments with Deanna and she called her, you know, my little one and stuff like that, but that she was so entrenched and compassionate for her people of Beta Zed that I really appreciated her character. And I felt that this book led and continued that growth that we saw in the end of TNG and DS9. I do like that she acknowledges that past with Picard, however lightly, though, as well. And I love Picard's reaction because, like you said, she says, um, I don't have time for your advances right now, Picard. We have work to do. Yep. And Picard's like, <laughs> yes, quite right. Okay, you're right. And <laughs> just like lets it go. I was yeah. like, ah, that's great. They've both grown. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's a, such a serious situation that she's in. It's not a time to be over dramatic about yourself and the things around. You know, it's it's very much of we've got lives to save. We have a mission. I mean, she's she's in a very interesting situation with trying to save her people. So yeah, we're gonna get that character who's grown over time, like you're saying, Amy, to this point now that she can make decisions. I mean, she's part of that decision making about getting this Tevern out of prison and using his mind, his abilities to kill people, to teach that to others. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we should talk a little bit about um, Deanna Troy's command of this away team. Oh, because- is she in this book? Yeah, <laughs> it's surprising. I know we have danced around the whole reason why I'm here. We really have. <laughs> yeah, so this this away team they they get Tevrin and they're trying to get him off the surface of the planet, um, but they come under attack by the Jem'Hadar, and he has this inhibitor implanted in him that keeps him from using his telepathic abilities but their backs are up against the wall and they have to get past these Jem'Hadar and their mission is going to fail if they don't so Dr. Crusher removes the inhibitor and he uses his ability to kill the Jem'Hadar and the inhibitor is then destroyed because he makes this getaway with Data basically because he's also learned telekinesis which is a very just kind of throwaway thing that was pretty convenient but you know, okay. Um, but with the inhibitor destroyed, it's no longer available to be implanted back into him. And we find out that he's grown dependent on it and actually dies because he can't, uh, he's grown so dependent on that, that it's completely messed up his brain and all this stuff. But right before he dies, he passes that, that knowledge onto Deanna but all this is a really long way of saying, you know, Vaughn is is out of commission. He's knocked out. And Troy has to lead this away team and make these big decisions about what they're going to do, including setting this guy loose on the Jem'Hadar. What did we think of her command abilities in this? And it's really her time to shine. What do you guys think? Well, she didn't crash a ship, so that's good. Oh, no. Stop it. <laughs> you did not go there, I've Bruce. heard the wrath of Amy and <laughs> made done a cheap shot, I have to say. <laughs> no, I thought her command in this mission, what, it, it was perfect. I mean, it was exactly what we would expect. She was very compassionate. She weighed her options. I mean, to go... And make that decision. And she talked it over with Beverly and with Data, you know, those who she trusted. You know, is this the right choice? We cannot withstand an attack from the Jem'Hadar. We are three, 
with people with one injured, like we cannot. And what are the other options? Um, I love the fact that when they were climbing the mountain to get to these caves to try and escape the Jem'Hadar, you know, and it just, yep, Crusher and Troy and Data, well, of course, Data is not going to be winded, you know, but because of Crusher and Troy and their Starfleet training, they, you know, scaled the mountain and then we've got Tevern back there huffing and puffing, you know. So, you know, their command physically, their command emotionally was just perfect. I, I loved it. And I'm sure that we will talk about how you said that Tevern passes his knowledge on to her because I have some things to say about that as well. Oh, yeah. I want to hear about that. Yeah, I love seeing Troy in command decisions. That's what I loved about the later seasons of TNG. Because, you know, in the earlier seasons, I loved her character. But, you know, it's, you know, well, how are you feeling? And, oh, let's eat chocolate. And now, you know, just seeing her in command decisions because she is a Starfleet officer. And we saw her become, go from lieutenant commander to commander because of passing the command tests. And now we get to see her leading this mission. So when Vaughn comes to the ship and says, okay, I'm relaying this mission to you guys, instead of going, okay, Captain Picard, this is what we need you to do. He looks to Troy and says, you're, you're leading this because it's your planet. You have experience with this Tevran. And by, by the way, the flashbacks, I pictured her in, like looking like her cheer, cheerleader self. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, me too. Hair as curly as curly could be. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, you know, I just love seeing her in command and, She's calling out orders to people that she's equal to, if not outrank in a sense, you know? And so, you know, we see Worf in command decisions. We've seen Vaughn in the novels and command decisions and such. And, you know, when she says, this is what we're doing. And, and when they look to her and she, she has to make the decision, she's making the decision. And that's what, that's one thing I really love about this novel is just letting her shine in that role. I mean, yeah, she shot Data. Yeah. yeah that was, that cool. was interesting. Yeah. That was a yeah, fateful moment shot shot the bad guy through data. Like that's such yeah. an action movie move. Yeah. That was so yes. great. <laughs> On purpose. It wasn't an accident. It was planned. Mm, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So Amy, you said you had some thoughts about uh Tevrin transferring his knowledge because yeah, just before he dies, he basically transfers all of what he's learned about this killing technique and all the crimes he's done and all the memories of that to Deanna. And it's kind of done to punish her, to torture her, both with the guilt and, and feelings that go along with what he's done. Deanna will feel the guilt. He doesn't feel guilt. I'm just going to be clear about that. But also because he knows, I think anyway, because he knows she'll have to make the choice now. Now it's not just delivering this guy and it's out of my hands. Now it's I have the knowledge and I will either put my people down this path or not. And it's entirely on her shoulders now. So is this the aforementioned rabbit hole that you were wanting to go down? <laughs> well, over on Earl Grey, I did an entire episode uh, talking about Troy's violations. And yet again, we see this because Tevron does not ask, hey, can I share with you how I do this? No, he forcefully grabbed her wrists and used that 
you know, forcing his memories. And it almost seemed like a Vulcan mind meld from what I was reading, because it was like specific events, specific knowledge was being transferred and specific emotions were being transferred, not all of everything that Tevern was. So to me, it felt like more of a mind melt. However, Mm. it was put on her without her permission. So, but then I think, okay, Troy aside, the character, and I made this point on, on my episode of Vero Gray, like she has these emotional telepathic connections because that is her heritage. That's her race, right? If it were anyone else, I still believe Tevern would have done it. So I don't think the fact that it happens to Troy is intentional. It's how the story goes because they are beta Z, they're telepathic. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I don't feel that it's this intentional. And I know there's some phrase, some new phrase. Okay, well, there's some kind of anything, some saying out there that I know that, you know, women are being used just for this purpose of the story. But I don't believe this to be the case in this story because it could have been a male telepath, a male bedazoid, and it still would have happened because of the way the story's written. Mm. So I don't believe that it is specifically a violation specifically on Troy. I believe Tevern would have done it no matter who the character. And again, going back to his psychopath and like how terrible of a person and sinister he is, that that is on him. It's not anything to get worked up about. I, You guys weren't con- overly concerned that this happened to Troy yet again, were you? Uh, well, I, I think it's interesting you brought it up because when I was reading this, I did think of Nemesis. I did think of that scene. And uh, I, it wasn't that I was concerned that, oh, this this has happened again. If anything, I thought it reminds me of it. But at the same time, she has this knowledge of killing uh, through telepathy. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if during that scene in Nemesis, she used that against the Viceroy as he's Ooh. raping her? Or Ooh. or at least like it's... It, it, I know it's a phrase that we hate, but headcanon, it's kind of almost in my headcanon now that she contemplated it. She thought about it, Yeah, but she's Mm. too good a person and didn't do it. So yeah, that's where my mind went. It was more of a, oh, this is happening. This happened to her before Nemesis. Right. So I was thinking really at this point, what happens to her Nemesis is the, oh my gosh, it's happening again. And that's where my mind went to the she could have maybe done something but like you said dan she contemplated hmm. it. She, mm, should i do this yeah i should also say while reading this i did it i i did bump on it a little bit it did pop into my head that this felt very familiar and i i think i didn't stop long enough to really kind of question that in my head while i was reading but you bringing that up now makes me think back to when i was reading that and thinking like yeah, it was another Troy as the victim of of something like this, and it felt familiar. And that yeah. scene when she's in sickbay and Nemesis and is telling Picard, it was a violation, sir. Like that, yeah, that yes. that all felt very, 
very familiar with this. So I definitely, um, I definitely get where you're coming from with that. And if I'd taken the time probably to really analyze it instead of just reading over it quickly, I, I probably would have, uh, gotten that a little bit better, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was interesting, Dan, when you said sort of the reasons why Tevrin did it, because I didn't even think about the reasons why he did it because I was coming at it from more of Troy being violated, being forced to withstand this attack. I didn't even think about why. And when you said he was doing it to punish her, I, that didn't even come to mm. mind. I was thinking when you were listing your reasons, I was thinking he wanted almost to punish the entire race of Beta Z people in making sure that that knowledge would be out there so that the people could self-destruct. Like that's how sinister mm -hmm. I was putting it on Tevrin. Kind of almost like a sick, twisted legacy he wanted to leave. Yeah. yeah that's Ooh. how I took it too. Like that's if Dr. McCoy were there, he would have put it in McCoy's mind too. <laughs> Just like <laughs> Spock did put his Katra. Um, and then the other thing that we were talking about this in Nemesis it just occurred to me, this book came out a year and a half before Nemesis. So this book did the violation thing before the movie. It wasn't like they got the idea from the movie or the movie had some influence on the writers of this well, book. Well, there's plenty of times in TNG episodes that it happens as well. Yeah. Like the episode violations. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't realize this book came out that early in 2002. This, this is a much older book than I was giving it credit for. Yeah, I know. When I looked it up, I was like, oh, gosh, I didn't know it was that old. It's almost, it's 18 years old. Wow. <laughs> Let's not analyze that too closely because um, I was just two years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> sure. Okay. I can't wait till I turn 21 next year. Just saying. <laughs> well, let's. Okay. Oh, so can I tell you about my little rabbit hole? Oh, yes. Yes. It's a little math moment. So listeners, if you listen to Earl Grey, uh, I try and put in a little math moment. <laughs> and I found one during this book. And it was interesting because um, it was when Deanna was talking to Luaxana and they were contemplating the deaths by releasing Tevern's knowledge into the population. And the authors chose to say that, yes, there may be some deaths, but not as much geometrically uh -oh. going forward. And I thought, why wouldn't they say exponentially? Because the deaths would continue exponentially. And so I, in the middle, paused my book and <laughs> went on and I was like, what is the difference between a geometric versus a uh, exponential growth. And it was very interesting. Um, they are considered to be synonymous to the layman, but of course not mathematicians. Uh, but a geometric growth or increase would be one that continues to add, but you can add, say like, X, X to the squared, X to the third, X to the fourth, but you're adding those increases, but the increases themselves can be exponential. 
Exponential increase is when you are multiplying and you are increasing by a common factor. So they both are interchangeable, but those are the slight differences that I found. And it was very interesting. So there's your little math wow. moment on literary trash. <laughs> that is so awesome. I don't know if we've had a math moment here on the show. Can I like say that. I had a tiny math moment as well, much smaller than the geometric versus exponential growth one, though. And it was just like any time I see a fraction or a something out of something, my brain automatically yeah. wants to put it in the lowest common denominator because just math <laughs> classes have trained me. So they said right. four out of every 10 Betazoid passed away doing this. <laughs> and I was like, wow two out of five would be more proper. (laughs) Thank you. I so caught that as well. And and then the next line was like, so that's 40%. Well, duh, four out of 10. I was like, who are you trying? Who are, who's reading this? Idiots? No. Star Trek fans are not idiots. You don't need to say, so that's 40%. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I wasn't going to, but yes, it annoyed me. I as wasn't well. going to bring it up either, but your other math moment made me realize I had a math moment too, and I wanted to belong. <laughs> My math Bruce? moment was subtracting 2020 and 2002 to say 18 years <laughs> to get to 18. <laughs> Nicely <job>. done. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump to the end then, though. We've talked a little bit about this, but uh, of course, as we said, the choice was between these two methods of killing and the Betazoids ultimately chose the non-killing method. Uh, they managed to capture most of the Jem'Hadar and the Starfleet troops overrun the Cardassians uh, and everything's ship shape in Bristol fashion. Everything's wrapped up nice, neat in a bow. What did you guys think of the conclusion of this story? Like, I'm just going to say one thing. As I was getting towards the end, I was looking at the number of pages and like, there's a lot that has to happen in a few pages. And indeed, a lot happened in very few pages. What did you guys think of that? Yeah, at the <laughs> at the beginning when I was saying it just, it seemed to tie up a little too perfectly. Like, okay, so... Tevran, we hated him. We didn't want to use his power, but we used his power to save us from the Jem'Hadar. But then he dies on his own. Like, no one had to kill him. Like, he died because of his whatever. So, like, no one had to kill him. And then we don't get to use his knowledge. So, that's nice and tied up and out of the way. But we can use this one other thing, but it only works on Jem'Hadar, the the known and, you know, secure bad guys. There's no if, ands, or buts on that. It's just the Jem'Hadar. And then, you know, it just, it tied up too nicely where it wasn't anyone's fault or decision or action, it just sort of worked out that way. Hmm. And so I sort of didn't like the lack of command decision when the story was so big in the beginning. So what would your rating be for the book? Well, (laughs) um, I'm going to, you know, I like all the books I read. 
So I'm still, okay, I'll give it four out of five stars. Just because the ending was a little too, like you said, ship shape, wrapped up, tied up in a bow, and now we're done. Mm-hmm. But I loved everything else about it. Okay. Yeah, I did too. I feel like there there could have been more exploration of this whole concept about, you know, what is the right thing to do? Is this really going to work? I mean, it did touch on some of that. I just feel like there was some opportunities to go a little deeper into some things and then explore maybe something more at the ending, maybe not wrap it up so quickly. Um, It didn't bother me that much, but I just feel like there's a lot of philosophical issues that could have been discussed a little more in this book that really would have charged me up a little more. So, but yeah, I, my rating's not going to be as high. I did like it, but I'm going to say that I'm giving it three out of five young Deanna Troy cheers. <laughs> okay. I want to change. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm just going to interject. I want to change uh, to four and a half stars because the ending and throughout they kept using the word Imzadi and the Troy and Will re- relationship kept coming into play. And like, oh my gosh, when Deanna sort of passed out from that focused mind beam on the, you know, <laughs> Jem'Hadar, the last word she says is Imzadi. And then we hear Will, you know, across the wherever he is and that he can sense Deanna. And so he has to hurry and rush to her side. And then they end in the holodeck with them on Risa in the holodeck and in each other's arms. So I enjoyed the Riker and Troy throughout the book, exploring their connection and knowing that it is so real. So I'm bumping it up to four point. Yeah. I like that they went there because of where this was in the timeline. And again, this is before nemesis where they're getting married. So it fits really well into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like, you know, it it adds a little bit more to, you know, in a couple months insurrection happens and they get together because of the radiation and the Baku rings, but there was some stuff there before. And then Worf's line in the movie, your feelings for her have always been there. Let's just let it out for a while. I was like, ah, that's great. I I love it. It, It's very nice. Oh, and and real quick, because you mentioned Worf, I did have the thought how Worf is now entered into this mission. I was like, this is just like the TNG movies. They find some reason that Worf is going to appear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, this could have been, this could have actually been a really interesting film or something between First Contact and Insurrection. And you're yeah. right. Yeah, that's a good point that like, oh, we got to bring Worf in. It's a TNG movie. That's awesome. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed this novel. I think, like I said, the authors show uh, a love of Star Trek and a very good knowledge of Star Trek. And I should also say the editors as as well do, because I know that they play a big role and Margaret Clark would, would tell us that as well, for sure. Um, the story itself, I thought was really interesting. For me, the heart of the novel is that choice at the end, like with the Betazoid people standing on that precipice and deciding, do we take this on and kill the Jem'Hadar at no risk to us? Or do we uh, potentially sacrifice ourselves to save our world and not taint the Betazoid heart with this killer instinct? I thought that was a great moral dilemma to end the book on and, and to kind of, 
have the book pivot on. That said, the ending, the very ending does wrap things up really quickly and succinctly. And then that that one line, and I can't remember the exact line, but it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth where they're like, oh, and the Betazoids uh, won't be doing this for other Jemadar and other battles because of reasons. And I mean, they're good reasons, but it was just so obviously like a line put there to explain why we never see this ability again. I'm like, oh, okay. Um so with that said, I'm going to give it, I'd say a three to f- a three and a half out of five. Uh, and that would be, um, maybe, yeah, three and a half pylons on a space station because the bottom ones they said weren't built yet or something like that. And I know that's six, but whatever, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it kind of works. Go with it. Um, but yeah, no, I generally enjoyed it and I'm really glad we finally got around to reading it. So, uh, yeah, not a bad novel. And, um, I think Deanna Troy fans out there will find a lot to love in this book. And if you're interested in seeing some of what the enterprise was up to during the dominion war as well, I think this kind of satisfies that, um, desire a little bit as well. I think this book would rate a little higher for me if I knew there was a follow-up to this mm. book because i think a follow-up book would really you know just escalate this even more because now it's like what happens after you know now that this knowledge is out there where is this gonna go mm-hmm. well there was a follow-up with krell Moset, and we remember how much we love the spirit walk novels right bruce you know what we love those novels so much that when i looked at the numbers of people who listened to that episode since it was two parts we got huge numbers on the first part but lower numbers on the second oh no (laughs) well i guess that says all we need to say about that yeah i would agree listeners this book really made me feel the dominion war i i think it really came to the forefront i mean all the time it was where we were always having to deal with the war and they mentioned it you know, with the Defiant and Deep Space Nine and, you know, the occupation. And they even brought like, well, this occupation is different than what it was in Bajor. So we sort of got that reference. Like it is a very, like you said, Bruce, a heavy topic book because it is taking place during this war, which I think I never really got the feeling like that on Deep Space Nine. Don't at me. Um but this book really brought the severity of the war to to my mind. Yeah, and that's a good point because it's also we're seeing the Enterprise and what they're dealing with during the war because we really don't see that in any of the TV or movies, you know. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, with that in mind, Amy, where can people follow and find you online and all the wonderful things that you do in, a, in this great fandom of ours? Anybody listening to this right now has no idea where Amy can be found. No, she's, yeah. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can find me here on the network, co-hosting Earl Grey, which is about Star Trek The Next Generation. You can find me, of course, then on the Babel Conference. I'm there. You can find me over on United Federation of Podcasts, where I host All Good Things, which is a Star Trek podcast where we get to talk about everything. So right now we're talking, obviously, about the Picard series. 
You can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson. And that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's always a pleasure chatting with you about TNG and Deanna Troy in particular. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you for um, accepting my own invitation to come. <laughs> I was having dinner with Bruce when he came to visit for a conference here in Vegas. And I was like, you know what? I need to be on your show because I miss you guys. So thank you for putting up. Well, with it's an open invitation. Yes. <laughs> Well, it was great having Amy on and, you know, wow, a, a book about Troy. And then we were talking to Amy and it's like, oh, what a perfect opportunity. And here she was. So, you know, I was a little disappointed because I heard so many good things about the book and I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. I still liked it, but not as much as I thought. Yeah, I agree. It was definitely an enjoyable read and one that I think, uh, you know, you shouldn't skip. I think it's definitely a good one and fits in really well in the lit verse. Um, but I th feel like maybe my expectations were built up a little bit too high for this one. Yeah, same here. Well, it's been fun talking about our expectations being set too high today, but that's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. Oh, let me think. What's an interesting Star Trek sound effect? Phasers? See, that's tough because how do you make a phaser sound? I, I don't know if you can make that with the human. <laughs> or you can do photon torpedoes. Choo, choo, choo. I'll, I'll, I'll just be the one that's pew, pew, pew. Oh, pew, pew, pew. Yeah. The discovery <laughs> phasers. Okay, cool. Awesome choice. Mm. Uh, and to come back to the point, I think I'm deleting this scene. Literary tricks. What was it that caused him not to be with his Paul immediately after coming out? What was it that made that relationship strange? Yeah. And I think it was that Culber had really lost himself in a lot of ways. And while Paul was his anchor, uh, when he came back to Paul, Paul had learned something by losing uh, you. And I think he, I think he became the Paul that Hugh needed. And I think that scared you a little bit. Mm -hmm. until he sort of found himself again. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Because we've never seen all of those hairy mud bots again. <laughs> yes, th thankfully. Yeah, uh, I would appreciate, though, like a mention in history in season three. is like, oh yeah, here's this time where the whole galaxy was crawling with these different hairy mud bots yeah. and rounding them up took years and, you know, that's what brought down the federation harry that, that was it it was harry mudbots harry mudbots oh no the line a star trek picard podcast we got a lot of answers in this episode which I, was really surprising mm -hmm. to me so there you know who's dodge and whatnot like, that's a thing i expected to find out in episode 10 going into this right. show right and here we are you know halfway through episode one and we know who dodge is and i'm like okay this is interesting i'm you know that's that's cool that we're getting a lot of information but getting that information is opening up more questions and that's what else is happening on trek.fm Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published, and please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. We really do appreciate that. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Bazinga. <laughs> no, just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and it will come right to us. And you can find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section. So you know what's coming up in future episodes of literary treks. Plus there are great conversations happening about the books and comics as well. Just search for literary treks on Goodreads and click join group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shemutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not an android pretending to be a simpleton brother while traipsing through the mountains of a Betazoid colony, where can we find you? Just, just please don't shoot me through the shoulder, please. <laughs> That would hurt. Hey, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me on the Star Wars report talking about Star Wars. And you can find me doing live shows with Dan and Brandy on the Kurt Tratz YouTube page. And where else can you find me? I guess always in the Babel conference. Is that all I'm doing? I feel like I'm doing more. Well, I do live from the edge with Brandy when there's new episodes discovery, but that's that we're like in a hiatus right now till season three. So Dan, <laughs> when you're not letting genies out of bottles, where can people find you? Well, I'm, uh, depending on the genie I'm letting out of the bottle, I might find myself seeing a nineties, Christina Aguilera music video, but I, I don't know. I think sing I'm it, sing it. <laughs> No, <laughs> but when I'm not letting that particular genie out of a bottle, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me, as Bruce mentioned, on YouTube. Kurtrats Productions is the name of the channel. And uh, yeah, we have live shows with Bruce and Brandy for new episodes of Picard and other videos as well, all about Star Trek. You can find me in the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek and on facebook.com slash Productions as well. 
Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.